Well, let me welcome you here to Big Valley Grace. Welcome to all of you over in the venue. And if you're watching online, we're, we're grateful that you're with us. All right, so, so uh, t- take your Bible and turn to John chapter 10. Okay, just put your finger in John chapter 10. Okay, if uh, you don't have a Bible, you can go into the altar room when we're done. And we'd love to give you a, a, a Bible. I know uh, last night we handed out quite a few Bibles. And if you're over in the venue and you don't have a Bible, you can go into the altar room over there and we will uh, give you a Bible. One of the things that we do is we purchase lots and lots of Bibles and give them out here. We purchase Bibles and give them to other churches in our town and in our county, churches that may not have the resources that we do, and then they can give them out to their visitors. And and so um, we want to make sure you have the Word of God on your own. All the verses will come up on the Jumbotrons. I think they're inside your your program uh, also. Well, we've been in a series here called Greater, Overcoming the Lesser Life, and today we're going to be wrapping it up. So let's begin by looking at what has become kind of our theme verse throughout this series. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And I've talked a lot about that over the last few weeks. I want to zero in on the second sentence. Jesus said, my purpose, my purpose, the reason why he came here, the reason why the second person of the Holy Trinity left the glories of heaven and came here, The reason um, uh, in December you put a tree up and put lights all around it and you put lights on your home and you put a wreath up on your door and you send out cards and buy presents and put up nativity scenes, the the reason he came, the, the purpose for that, Jesus said, was I've come that you might have a rich and satisfying life. Some of your Bibles say that you would experience life to the fullest. That's why he came. And you have to ask yourself, well, well, I'm alive now, aren't I? Well, yeah, in some uh, way you are alive. Your heart's beating and all that. He's talking about eternal life here. I've come that you might experience eternal life. Life with him forever and ever in glory. But as I've shared with you over these last few weeks, I think there's a component to it here that God says, look, if you know me, if you've received me, if I'm a part of your life, I have a a rich and satisfying life for you right now, one full of purpose and meaning and, and significance. And it's been my prayer throughout this series that everybody that names the name of Christ or Big Belly Grace would experience this rich and satisfying life. And it's been really neat to get, oh, I, I don't even know how many, hundreds and hundreds of emails and texts and messages and even snail mail. Some of you actually wrote out letters and licked a stamp and put it on it and sent it to me of how the Lord, through his word, has been at work in your life. And that's, that's a good thing. Today, 
we're going to look at uh, one of the, the great forces of evil that robs us of this life. This evil force is something that everybody in this room, whether you believe in Jesus or not, has to deal with, and that's materialism. We've all heard those famous words from the Declaration of Independence. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You've probably read that, heard it before. Well, the person who struggles with materialism believes in life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. And if they don't have the cash to pay for their happiness, they'll simply just put it on a credit card. Because having stuff matters to the person who struggles with materialism. Stuff is important to them. It's so important to them, if they don't have the money to purchase the stuff, they'll just put it on the credit card. That's how important it is to them. I can't afford it. We can't afford it. We don't have the money for it. But I want it so badly, I'll put it on my credit card. You see, a lot of people really believe that the more stuff they've got or the more things that they accumulate, the happier they'll be. So the question I want to deal with today or wrestle around with today is this, is how are we as followers of Jesus Christ supposed to live in this culture that seems to be all about money and wealth and possessions? How do we navigate that as followers of, of, of Jesus Christ. Now the good news is that the Bible has a lot to say about materialism or how we should view our money or our wealth. In fact, about 15% of everything that Jesus ever said that's recorded in the New Testament has to do with money and possessions. About one out of every seven words Jesus spoke had to do with this topic. And do you know why? The reason Jesus talked so much about money and wealth is because he knew how central it was to our lives and to the building of his kingdom and how crucial it was to our spiritual health and development. How crucial it was to this life that he wants us all as his children to experience the side of, of glory. Beloved, Jesus didn't talk about money and wealth because the church needs money or because God needs money. That's not why he did it. Or talked about it. He talked about it because if you get it wrong, if you get how to handle your finances, you get that wrong, how to handle your wealth, if you get that wrong, then it goofs up just about every area of your life, doesn't it? It certainly will goof up this life that Jesus wants you to experience down here on planet Earth. I mean, think about it. How many fights and arguments have you had with your spouse over, you know, money, things, buying something, not buying something? 
It it can literally dominate your life, your family. Some of you are sitting here right now going, man, this guy reading our mind. You, You argued on the way here today about it. So today, I just want to talk about it openly and honestly, and here's the deal. There are basically two kinds of people here today or over in the venue. Number one, you're a new visitor or a new guest. This is your first time here at Big Valley Grace, and you're thinking to yourself, I knew it! All that church wants is my money. That's all they ever talk about, right? Well, I promise you that if you come back, you'll see that I talk about a lot of different things from the pulpit, because the Bible talks about a lot of different things. The Bible uh, has lots to say about marriage or parenting, integrity, character, love, relationships, sex, sin, you name it. I talk about a lot of different things. You just happen to show up on a day when I'm going to talk about wealth. Now, the second type of person here today are those of you that are a part of the family here at Big Valley Grace, and you're thinking to yourself, why did I come to church today? I hate it when Rick talks about money. In fact, some of you right now are formulating a plan on how you can get up and leave here in a minute. You, you, you don't want to get up right now because that's just too obvious. I get it. And so in a minute, you're going to get up and act like you got a bad hamstring or something. you got a cramp. And you're going to walk out of here. And I just want you to know I, all the doors are locked. <laughs> so so don't, don't even think about it. I, I, got, I got you locked in here. <laughs> Isn't it weird that whenever you talk about money, especially in church, it causes you to squirm. Isn't that weird? I believe without a shadow of a doubt that there are forces at work that don't want you to hear what God has to say about money. And those forces certainly don't want you to apply it. Those forces at work, Christian, want you to walk out these doors here in a minute and just blow off everything God's word has to say and you just keep handling your money, your finances, your wealth the way you've been handling it. Here's the bottom line. I, I talk about money and wealth because God talks about it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm, I'm going I'm to give you uh, four survival tips, if you will, on how to navigate this materialistic, over-the-top, excessive culture that we all, you know, live in. Just four little thoughts for you that I hope will be a blessing uh, to you, okay? Survival tip number one is this, okay? Don't allow your identity to be defined by what you own. And beloved, this is a choice that all of us have to make. That somehow, you know, the, the house that we own and the neighborhood that we own it in, you know, is it a two-story, a one-story, is it three-bedroom, four-bedroom? Uh, what kind of car am I driving? Um, what kind of clothes am I wearing? You see... We, we, we can't allow our identity to be defined by all the stuff we have or we don't have. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, watch out. Watch out. 
Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the reason why Jesus says, watch out, be on guard, is because he knows us. He knows our, he understands the flesh. And he wants to make sure that, that, that we're not defined by the stuff we own. I want you to know right out of the gate uh, that the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. That's a, that's a horrible misconception. The Bible does not say that. It's not true. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Paul said that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And there's a difference between money and loving it, craving it, wanting more of it. Beloved, money in and of itself is value neutral. God created money, and when it's used properly, it's a good thing or a wonderful thing. It's, a, it's like sex. God created sex, and when it's enjoyed by a man and a woman in the confines of marriage, it's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's something that enhances your life. And the same thing is true about your money. It's, it's value neutral. But what the Bible does warn us about is that there can be, there, there can be, a downside to money. Paul said that when you love and crave after money, it just it can lead you to a bad place. Jesus says, watch out, be careful, don't be greedy for what you, you don't have. Your life is way more than what you possess. Way more than that. Your life isn't measured by how much you own, but the truth is we can all get goofed up at times about this, can't we? Solomon, who was the richest man alive at his time, wrote these words. He, he would have been maybe the Bill Gates of his day or the Warren Buffett of his day, okay? He said, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. <laughs> I just watched a program the other day about these athletes. And these guys had signed $100 million contracts to put a ball through a hoop. $100 million, $100 million, $100 million. And they're flat broke today. My son Cade has more than they've got. My son Cade's going to be a freshman this year. And the basic premise behind the stories were they all had people that came and helped them spend their money. Friends and relatives all came out of the woodworks, you know. So what good is wealth, Solomon says, except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Beloved, we need to stare this truth in the face. 
Our national obsession with stuff and, and things and possessions is literally kind of an insanity. And we as Christians need to lead the way in breaking this ugly, joy-robbing, satanic cycle. Because it only leads to bondage. That's all it does. And if statistics are right, there's a whole bunch of you in here and you're just in bondage to debt. Stuff you bought. Because you thought that, man, if I just had one more thing, whatever it was, I, I, I somehow would enhance my life. I'll be a different person. People will think of me differently. I'm embarrassed, you know, when somebody drives up to my house in the neighborhood that I live in. Whatever, whatever those thoughts are that run through our minds. A number of years ago, I shared with you this idea, and I, I think it's a good idea, especially if you've got you know, kids at home or maybe grandkids at home. One of these Saturdays, I want you to put the kids in the car. It's going to have a little field trip. I want you to go on a little field trip. And I want you to take them to the dump. Because what your family will see is all the stuff that people are literally out of control trying to buy. I mean, right before their eyes, they're going to see what most people spend all their time and energy and resources trying to acquire. And now it's simply lying in a big pile of trash. That's where it is. The dump is basically where all the stuff that we're frantically trying to get a hold of ends up because it, it breaks or it gets old or it's outdated or it doesn't fit anymore or it's out of style or whatever. So it ends up at the dump in a big, huge garbage pile. Hey, forget about taking your kids there. Leave your kids at home. And some of you just need to get in a car with your spouse and drive to the dump and just look at all this stuff. Oh, it used to be brand new. And there it is. All piled up. Let me share with you quickly the three great myths about money. You've probably all heard these. Number one, myth number one, is that money brings satisfaction. True satisfaction. Look. Money can buy you a house, but it can't buy you a home. Money can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. Money can buy you a clock, but it can't buy you time. Money can buy you sex, but it can't buy you love. Money can buy a lot of stuff, but it can't buy you respect. It can't buy you meaning or purpose. And then it certainly you can't purchase satisfaction with it. Myth number two, money brings peace of mind. Listen to what Solomon said. He said, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Now, let me tell you what he's talking about here. Okay? Let me just tell you. Let me, let me put it in a modern-day context for you. What Solomon's saying is, is that the guy who, uh, you know, shows up at the mechanic shop and he punches in at 8 o'clock in the morning... And he's working, you know, busting his hump, 15 bucks an hour, whatever it is, 20 bucks an hour. He puts in a good day's work, punches out, walks out the door. You know what? He sleeps well. 
Goes home to his apartment. First and the 15th, he picks up his paycheck. Oh, he may not have a fancy car and a fancy house and fancy paintings on the wall. He may not have a lot of nice jewelry. He may not have a lot of money in his 401, you know, K or his 403B, whatever it might be. But you know what? He sleeps well. Weekend comes, weekend goes. He shows up to work on Monday, punches in, changes carburetors, changes crankshafts, changes tires, does his work, does whatever it is he does. Two weeks later, picks up his paycheck, pays off a few bills he's got, enjoys his life, goes to sleep. Solomon says, that guy sleep well, but it's the guy that owns the shop. Oh, he's got a bigger house. He's got a nicer car. He's got more, you know, uh, nicer artwork on his walls at home. Got nicer jewelry. But that guy doesn't sleep as well because he's got all kinds of things to worry about. He's got to order up, you know, all the parts. He's got to get all the stuff. He has to make sure that all the bills are paid. He's got to take care of liability and insurance. And, and now he's got to worry about his house. No one's going to break into the, the guy that's just, you know, punches in and punches out. He's got nothing to steal. But someone's going to break into the guy that owns the place's house and steal his furniture and steal his stuff. He's got to pay for all of that kind of stuff. He's got all kinds of things to worry about. That guy can't do his... His uh, taxes on, you know, quick books. He's got to hire a guy to handle all that kind of... <sighs> and there are lots of times, and I talked with a number of guys last night, and I'm, I, I can look around this room, and I see a lot of you that own businesses. And you're looking at me going, boy, Solomon's right. My employees, they, they, they do okay. They just punch in, punch out, and they don't worry about a thing, but I got to worry about all kinds of stuff. Rich got to worry about all their investments and all their expensive things, and they just got to worry about all the. <laughs> Look, the guy that punches in and punches out and makes fifteen bucks an hour. He doesn't have a stack of people wanting, you know, him to donate to all of the great causes that are in the world. But the guy that owns the business. The guy that's, you know, higher up the food chain, he's got a pile of stuff. Do I give to them? They want money. They want money. These guys want money. They want me to give. They want me to give. Who am I going to disappoint, you know? That, that's a modern-day interpretation, if you will, of Ecclesiastes 5. Don't think that money's going to bring you peace of mind. And those of you that are just the working stiffs out there, you punch in, you punch out, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I want to own that thing someday. And be careful what you ask for. And those of you that own businesses are going, yeah, be careful. Oh, there are some, there are some nice things about owning your own business. Don't misunderstand me. Solomon's saying that you shouldn't do that. He's not, he's not saying that, but he's just saying, hey, look, don't think it's that easy. There's a lot of headaches, a lot of sleepless nights that come when you own the place. Myth number three, money solves all your problems. This is one of the biggest lies from the pit of hell that somehow money will solve all the problems you have. Now, money can solve some problems. There's no doubt about that. 
But money can't solve the two biggest problems that you have. Number one, all the money in the world can't solve the problem of your sin. And number two, all the money in the world can't stop you from dying, which is a result of your sin. Doesn't matter how much money Bill Gates has, he's going to die just like the poorest person in the room. Proverbs chapter 11 says, Riches will not help when it's time to die. But right living, giving your life to Christ, being a follower of His, will save you from death. Why? Because you'll experience life with him forever in eternity. So here's the question. How, how, do you, how do you deal with all this? I mean, how do you not let your identity or your self-worth get wrapped up with, you know, what you possess? Well, I think these next three survival tips are, are, are the answer, okay? And here's survival tip number two. Realize that God is the owner of all you have. Christian, that's a theological truth that all of us have to come to grips with. That God is the owner of everything that you have. Okay? Everything. Psalms 24 puts it this way. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. The world and all who live in it. That about covers everything, doesn't it? This is the starting point in dealing with your finances. Listen to me. Christian, listen. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've stepped over the line and given your life over to Jesus Christ, one of the things that he taught was that when you follow him, it had implications for your life today. In other words, being a follower of Christ isn't just that your sins have been forgiven and you get to go to heaven when you die, but being a follower of Christ has implications for your life right now while you're still alive. And one of those implications is that the Bible says that you don't even belong to yourself. You belong to God. Paul says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who was given to you by, by God? You don't belong to yourself. You don't even belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Look, here, the second survival tip is, is really critical, that you realize that God is the owner of everything you have, and that even includes you. He owns you. He owns all of our stuff. It's all his. Now, I'm sure this upsets some of you because you're thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute. I went to school. I went to college. I got an education. I got that first job. I put in long hours. I've been loyal to the company. I've been working my tail off to get to where I am. Everything I have, I've earned. I borrowed 20 bucks from my grandpa, started the business, and 20, 30, 40 years later, you know what? I'm the one who... Put in all of the, the work, the sweat equity. I'm the one who did it. Well, I want you to listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, but remember 
the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Christian, we can forget, which is why God says, but remember, God is the one who gives you whatever abilities you have to uh, acquire whatever wealth you might have. It's God. He's done it. And this is... This is fundamental for us as believers to understand. It's, it's all God. It's all his. Everything's his. Moses says before you get all proud and puffed up about all you've accomplished and all the money you've made and all the wealth you've accumulated, just remember it's God who gave you the ability to get the job you have. It's God who gave you the skills to get where you are today. Beloved, what... You know, you have, you have because of God. There have been many times, especially when my kids were little, when I took them maybe to McDonald's and we bought a Happy Meal. And on the way home, you know, we're driving and I would reach my hand into the bag and I would grab a fry or two. And when I pulled them out of the, the, the bag, you know, one of my kids would say, Dad, that's mine. Quit eating my stuff. They don't have a job. They don't have any money. They don't own a thing. They basically don't have a life without me, and yet those are their fries, right? That's, it's exactly what we do at times with the Lord. It's all his. We would have nothing apart from him. Nothing. And by the way, in the common grace of God, he's even giving you, those who are unbelievers, things. In his common grace, he's given you abilities, skills, and even the wealth that you have, he gave it to you. But we as believers, you see, we that do believe in the scriptures, we have to come to grips with this truth. It's all his. It's all his. Now, God doesn't reach into the bag, so to speak, and pull out the whole bag of fries and say, it's mine, I'm taking it all. He doesn't do that. But what he does say to his people is, hey, look, it's all mine. Just, will you give me a little piece of it? Can you hand me a couple of fries? Just a couple. He, he could say I want it all. It's all his. I could say to my kids, hey, all those fries are mine. I don't do that. And yet, isn't it weird we get to this moment in our service where God says, can I have a couple of fries? You know, but you smile because, you know, you're a Christian guy. And, you know, you're, hey. Isn't that weird? Huh. Now, if God's the owner, what does that make us? Well, this, this brings us to survival tip number three, okay? 
Survival tip number three is we all need to learn to be a manager of whatever it is that God has given us. That makes sense, right? He, he owns it all. And if God in his grace and in his love and in his mercy has given you something, I don't know, maybe he's given you more than he's given me. I don't know how all that works, but he's given you something. And he said, it's all mine. It's all his. The, the children you, ha you have, little baby holding in your arms right there, it's a gift from him. Jobs you have, whatever it is, it's all his. Then we as believers then have to go, okay, I just need to learn to, to, to manage what he's given me. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And God has given you some property, if you will. He's given me some. He wants us to be trustworthy with it. Now just for a moment, I want you to think back to the beginning of the Bible. Early on in Genesis, God creates the universe, and he creates this wonderful garden, right? The Garden of Eden. Then God creates a man, Adam, and then the Bible says this in Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, he took Adam... And he put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things. This is a, uh, I own the do domain name for Genesis 2.15. Got a whole ministry I'm laying out. And I, I, the, the, men, I want you to listen to me. Right here, uh, God gives us an incredible piece of data. This is something that God wants for every man. Here's the first human being. God has created it all. It's all him. And he takes the man who he also created, and he puts him in the garden to do two things. And the first thing is, Adam, I want you to work. I want you to work it. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God working, right? And now we have God saying to Adam... Adam, I want you to work. It's God's expectation that men work. That's not to say women can't work. Don't misunderstand me. But you can't miss the implication here. God could have taken Adam and Eve and put them both in the garden. He could have waited another, you know, day. But he didn't. He takes the man and he puts him in the garden. He says, I want you to work it. You have something to do. It's mine. It's my garden. All, everything in here is mine. But I'm going to put you in here to be the manager of it. You're going to manage my stuff. Now, you're going to be blessed from it. You're going to eat the fruit and you're going to be able to do all the stuff. But, but I want you to work it. 
Work is an important thing to God. Now, I realize that there are moments when, you know, men will be disabled, the soldier goes off to war, loses his leg, something like that. I don't know what it might be. I'm not talking about those moments. I'm talking about just, you know, basic, you know, Bible, you know, theology is that men are to work. But, in fact, you get to the New Testament, you know, you know guys, it's hard, hardwired within us, isn't it? What do we do with the first thing when you meet a new buddy? Hey, my name is Rick. Hey, I'm Rex. What's the next question? What do you do? Women don't tend to do that. It's not hard, hardwired in them, but it is a guy. We tend to ask that question. What do you do? Now, where sin gets involved in it, men, is this. Um, we meet somebody, and they're, they're a brain surgeon. I'm a brain surgeon. We go, ooh, man, that guy's a brain surgeon. And then we meet a guy over here, and, you know, he's the guy that busts his hump changing carburetors out. And we go, guy changes carburetors. To God, it doesn't matter whether you're a brain surgeon or whether you, you know, you, you, you change out carburetors. It's work. And we tend to put a higher value on, I don't know, an athlete or a brain surgeon than we do a guy that's, you know, a mechanic or whatever it might be. And that's sinful. We need to repent of that because the issue isn't what they do or how much they make. The issue is they're working. They're fulfilling God's mandate. You get to the New Testament and work is so important for a man. Paul says, if a man does not work, he should not eat. I mean, that's how... That's how how important this is to God. That he puts Adam in the garden and he says, I want you to work it. And then the second thing he says is, I want you to take care of it. Some of your Bibles say, I want you to tend to it. So, so there's this idea of working and there's this idea of taking care of something. And men, one of the things we're to tend to or take care of, hey, is our own lives. Our own spiritual lives, we need to make sure that we tend to ourselves. We're to tend to, I don't know, our wives, our families. If you own a business out there, you're to tend to, I don't know, your employees. You got to care for them. Uh, as a member of this church, you're to tend for the church. You're to care about the church. There's lots of places, men, where we are to work and to tend to things. And ladies, please don't misunderstand me. God doesn't have a problem with you working, and he certainly doesn't have a problem with you tending to things. But this is God talking to Adam. This is God talking to a man. Let me just tell you something. Survival tip number two, it's all his, but survival tip number, number three is, is, look, you just need to learn to manage, take care of, if you will, what God's given you. Genesis 2, Adam, take care of what I've given you. Here we are all these thousands of years later, It hasn't changed. We just may not be in the garden. But God's expectation is is that you simply manage and take care of what's already his. 
Look, all of us are going to stand before God someday, all of us. And we're going to give an account for how we managed and cared for whatever it is that God's given us. All of us. Every one of us. It's going to be the mother of all performance reviews. God's going to say, hey, George, hey, hey, Roger, hey, Andy, hey, Harry, Alan, I gave you, gave you something, my, all mine. Let's talk about how you managed. Let's talk about how you took care of it. Did you tend to things? It was, remember, it was my stuff. Or did you act like they were your fries? I mean, it's going to happen. We're, well, we're, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to, we're going to get there. That's not, that's not the issue. Well, we'll give an account of how we chose to live our lives down here. So how do you do that? How do you manage the money that God has entrusted to you effectively? Well, let me give you three things. I've given these to you before. They're pretty simple, but you need to know them. The first thing is this, is, is you give to God. That's where it all begins. It all begins right there. Pastor Bobby read Proverbs 3, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. With the best part. It's all God's. God doesn't say, I want it all. All the money you make, all the stuff you make, you bring it to me. I want it all. Doesn't say that. God just simply says, look, it's all mine, and just so that you keep your focus and you don't forget about this thing, I, I want you to love me. I, I want you to care about what's important to me. You just bring me the first part. I want best. I don't want you to pay your MID, pay your PG&E, pay your water bill, pay all your credit card bills, pay all the stuff, pay your mortgage, pay all that, and then give me something that's left over, God says. I don't want leftovers. I don't want a goat with a poked out eye. I want the best you got. That's what I want. I don't want it all. You just, just give me a little piece of it. You can continue to manage all the other stuff I've given you. And in two weeks, you'll, you'll have more wealth. You'll have more. And you, or a week or a month or however it is you pay, get paid, you'll have more. You just, you just don't forget me in this whole thing. The very first thing is you think through your giving to God. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. Number two is real simple. First, you take care of the Lord. And number two, you provide for your family. Take care of your family. Paul says, whoever does not care for his own relatives, especially his own family members, has turned against the faith and is worse than someone who doesn't believe in God. That's just, whoa, that's brutal. That's just brutal. This is important stuff to God. It's important to him that you understand you bring a gift to him, you honor him with the first part, and then you, you take care of your own family. You take care of your own family. You do it. 
Now, there are places in Scripture that talk about a church family coming together and helping widows. And I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm just talking in a general sense here. You are to take care of your own family. You're to do it. And if you don't, then I didn't write that. I didn't write that. The Holy Spirit filled Paul. God had Paul write that. So the first thing you do with your wealth is you say, God, here's my gift to you. We make it super easy here. But a little basket goes by and we realize the culture we live in, you, you can give online and you, you, lots of ways you can, you can do it. Sometimes in God's church, we have special things that go on. I don't know, fixing roads, building buildings, you know, and we all come together in these very special ways and say, God, not only am I going to give you my gift, but I'm going to give a special gift for you and what you're doing. And number three is you help others. So first you give to God, then you take care of your own family. And I think I don't have time to go into all this, but taking care of your own family would be saving. You've got to save money. The Bible has a lot to say about that. That's one of the ways you take care of your family. As you think about someday in the future when you can't get around as well as you can now and you can't work as well as you can now, and have I thought through what happens when I can't go out and work like I was when I was younger? Have I got a retirement kind of plan? You know, that's all part of it. But then you've got to think about others. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 4 says. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. That makes sense, right? Doing something useful with his own hands. This also makes sense. But it's the next phrase that's really interesting. Paul says, hey, get to work. Go work. Do something that you may have something to share with those in need. Wow, he just... Man, when you're a follower of Christ, everything just gets turned on its head. Hey, God says, get to work. Go to work. Earn a living. That way you can... Yeah, you, 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 you bring your gift to me, you take care of your own family, but you don't stop there. You, you always have a shekel or six left over so you can help somebody else. You can help a neighbor, help somebody you work with. Some kid wants to go to camp here and they don't have enough money and you say, you know what, I've been saving, I've been working, I've been following what the scripture says and I'll take care of a kid's camp or I'll, whatever that thing might be. Yes, we as a church family together help people, good Sam, all those kinds of things. But you as an individual, yes, you give to God. Yes, you take care of your own family. And then you go, okay, Lord, I'm going to set aside a few shekels every month because I don't know, Lord, there's a single woman lives down the street and, hey, I'll go down and say, hey, your tires are bald. Would you let my wife and I, would you, would you give us the honor of, Repairing your tires. Th- th- thanks for gutting it out and raising your children. You, you do it. You have the money to do it. But the reality is, is that Christians hardly have enough money to pay their own bills, let alone 
fulfilling what the scriptures say. Helping others. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even, I can't even help myself. One of the great, I'll, I'll tell you the biggest lie out there. I'm, I'm telling you, there, I don't know if there's a bigger lie than this. And we've all bought it. You're watching that thing on TV and you just got to have it. And then they come out with this lie, this lie from the pit of hell. Four easy payments. <laughs> That's a lie. Anybody here would stand up and say, oh, every one of them is easy. <laughs> no. But we're watching it. Four easy payments. Hey, hey, honey, there's four easy payments. I'm going to buy two of those sham wells. I, I need these things. Three, the payments are easy. They are. Let's do it. And we buy it. And we got four easy payments. I go with the six easy payments we bought last month and the 12 easy payments for this thing and the third. And before you know it, we got all these easy payments. And we can't fulfill God's word. And we get robbed of this beautiful life that Jesus came to give us. So you give to God first. You take care of your own family second. And then you figure out a way, how, how do I help folks? How do I help them? And as I, uh, um, by the way, if your finances are all goofed up, and I know lots of your finances are goofed up, I know. We have a great ministry here called Compass. It's like a Bible-based uh, you know, financial thoughts. And I don't know, it's eight, ten weeks long. And you can go to our website and, and call the church on Monday and say, I need to get signed up for it. Because here's the deal, your finances aren't going to get better on their own. And you already have figured that out. You just keep digging a hole and just, just digging a hole, man. And you're just deeper and deeper in the hole. And you know what? Monday, you call the church. Ah, it's Tuesday. We got a we holiday. So call the church on Tuesday and say, hey, Pastor Rick talked about that compass class. I, I need to get in it. And the last one, real quickly, uh, is this, and I want to come back around. It, it could have been, I could have wrapped it into another one. I wanted to make its own, but commit yourself to joyfully and generously contribute to, to God's church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that, that, that's, there's, there's this thought here that, you, that you've really, I don't know, you sat down with your spouse if you're married, if you're a single person, you sat down and said, okay, what, what, what am I, I going to give? God wants us to give to him first, and so let's think about this, sweetheart. Let's, let's have a conversation about this. Because he... He's the first gift. He, he, he's told us in his word, and so let's figure it out. And by the way, there's no wiggle room in the scripture. I tried to find one where it says, if you're so underwater with your finances, God says, hey, listen, take a break from honoring me. I couldn't find it. But, but I tried. I really did. 
In the midst of pulling yourself out from underwater, God still expects for you to remember him with a gift. I don't care what the gift is. But here's this idea where Paul says, hey, think about it. Give it some thought. That's why we hand out envelopes and we'll mail them to your house so that they come and you go, huh, what have we decided to do? What is it? I'll bet most of you, you know, the plate's coming around, you know, you, you pull out your wallet and go, oh, I got a 20. Is it embarrassing to ask for change? A 20, I knew I should have stopped and gotten some ones. got this great cartoon of all of the ushers, you know, the, yeah, and they all have those little machines on. <laughs> so they're going down and people are getting change, you know. I can't give you all this. Here you go. Um, because <laughs> you just haven't thought it through. And God, God's word doesn't want you just to haphazardly give, oh, whatever, I got a 20 in my wallet today. Really? Look at that cross for a second. Just look at the cross. Really? You just kind of haphazardly throw a 20 in the thing? Is it possible to understand sin, hell, heaven, redemption, Jesus dying, and to haphazardly throw a 20 in the offering basket? Really? Is that, is that possible? Listen, I don't know what they're doing in other churches. I don't know. And I don't care. I care about this one. I don't want the people here to think it through. And, and, and here, here's something you won't hear anywhere else. Here's how you can figure out whether the amount you're giving is what you ought to give. Take out your checkbook and write a number on it. And when you see that number, you can't smile, rip it up. Write another one. Put a different number on it. Rip it up. Remember, God doesn't need your money. This is his church. This is not yours, not mine. God's quite capable of taking care of his church. This is a moment for you, your spouse, or you as an individual before God to decide, God, here's my gift to you. And if you can't smile about it, if you don't have joy about it, then pick another number. And when you finally get down to whatever number you go, okay, I'm good with that, you know, a buck. Then put it in the offering basket, and you before God can have any conversations you want in the future. You'll stand before him someday, not me. I don't know what you give. I don't know. But think it through. Think through all that he's done for you in your life. And go, okay, here's the check. I'm right. That's the first one. And here's the deal. Once that one's written, now you, you minus that off of the ledger there, and all of a sudden, whew, huh. and there's always going to be something that comes up. The refrigerator breaks. I don't know. Something goes down. You go, oh, man. 
My wife and I, you know, at the beginning of every, every year. Okay, sweetheart, here, here, here's what we give. How do, we, how, do we, how do we give a little bit more this year? How do we do that? How do, how do we do that? We kind of wrestle around with it and pray about it. Come up with some number. And then that's the first check that's written. And in my humanity, there are a lot of things I could do with that check on the first and the 15th. A lot. And my flesh gets all goofed up in it. I'm no different than anybody else. And then you just spend some time thinking about salvation. It's all his. I'm just to manage it. You let it go. And you give with joy. It's all his. God doesn't want you to give because, you know, there's some sort of pressure, obligation. He just wants you to do it just cheerfully. He wants there to be joy in that moment when you give. Because you understand how great your salvation is. Let, let, let me say this. Everybody over there stand up over in the venue. I want all of you to stand. I'm going to pray, but let me, let me, let me say this, okay? I'm very much aware of our valley and Modesto and the median of incomes and blah, blah, blah. Okay? I've done this a long time. And let me just say to you, church family and those of you over there, you're, you're a generous group of people. You really are. I track with other churches and things and you're just very generous. The overwhelming majority of you, I think, get this. You really do. And for most of you, it was just a great refresher, great reminder of truth. But I also know there's a percentage of you. And uh, may the Holy Spirit do his work in your life as you walk out of here today. That you begin to look at your finances, your wealth, all that kind of stuff with a different set of eyes. That we as a church family would really get it. Because you get this, the chances are pretty good you're going to experience this life that Jesus has for you in a whole, whole new and fantastic way. Father, thank you, Lord. For uh, today, I really enjoyed this uh, a bunch, Lord. Last night was great. Man, the music today was so sacred and holy. It's just great, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word and for this series. I, I know you did good things with it, Lord. I know. Bless us now as we go, and may those that are going to go to prime time just have a great time in there with the Melody Boys. And I pray this in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. Hey, live for Christ, okay?